Old Testament scripture reading is Psalm 68, verses 1 through 18. Our text for the sermon this morning is going to come from Ephesians chapter 4. In that passage from Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 68. He actually makes a change interpreting it. So hopefully you can notice that as we read this. So I want to highlight what Paul is going to quote but also apply is verse 18. So where our reading ends. When he makes a change like that, applying the psalm, one of the things he's signaling is that Really, he is summoning the entire psalm. He's not just quoting an isolated verse, but quoting a verse is a way of referring to all of it. And so we read more than just that verse for context. Psalm 68, verses 1 through 18. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to His name. Lift up a song to Him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before Him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain, before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil, though you men lie among the sheepfolds. The wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zaman. O mountain of God, Mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. The text for our sermon begins at verse 7. We begin our reading at verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, 
just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who was over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ." from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray for your Spirit's presence and work among us so that the proclamation of your word might truly be a means of grace, a tool, an instrument that you are using to cultivate faith in our hearts. We are gathered here for many different circumstances, and we we pray then for you to be the one who is at work among us, so that we might each hear and receive your word by faith. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we come to this passage from Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, I'm very of this fact that we have quite a few visitors among us, and we have been uh, disrupted in the flow of the series as well. And so I want to um, give us some context for what we are talking about this morning from Ephesians chapter 4. Our text begins at verse 7. And as I was reading it, I was struck by like, wow, there is a lot in that passage. This is why I broke up this first half of chapter 4. Originally, the first half was going to be one sermon. We did a whole sermon, as you'll recall, in verses 1 through 3, 4 through 6, and now 7 through 16 is really our third part. Our focus is simply going to be this, that in these verses... The Apostle Paul announces the good news that Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven, and as the one who has ascended into heaven, he is building his church. All of this is going to sound like very big, lofty themes. The victory of Christ over evil, ascending to heaven, ruling and reigning over all things. And so as a way of sort of, I hope, drawing all of us together as we begin, I want to emphasize something in the grammar of verse 7. Now, grammar is not usually the most exciting way to introduce a sermon, but I'm hoping this will uh, draw us in to what is being said. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us. 
the phrase here that the English translation hides is that Paul is actually emphasizing at this point to each one of us. He says, but to each of us, grace was given. That's a bit awkward in English. The ESV then smooths it over. And the point here is this. The Apostle Paul is transitioning to a focus on each of us by faith in Christ receiving grace personally. There has been all manner of big themes being proclaimed, announced of what God is doing in Christ. Here he is homing in on us individually. To each one of us, grace has been given. Notice the difference. Each Grace has been given, he says, according to the measure of Christ's gift. The implication here being that in the church, everyone receives grace differently. Different kinds of grace, different amounts, different areas of life, different elements of wisdom. And this is actually why he had to say what he was saying leading up to this point, to bear with one another in love. So if you remember the personalness of all of that, our life together as the church, called to live in fellowship despite our differences, here he's homing in on one of the reasons that is the case. To each one of us, grace has been given. So as we begin this morning, we're going to be in the lofty theme of Christ ascending into heaven. As I do this, I want you to go into that that, that, that big sort of epic theme, the way we're talking about the gospel, as being the way the Apostle Paul is actually saying to each of us. What is this grace? What is this gospel that is announced for each of us? We're going to look at this in three steps. First, the victory of Christ in verses 7 through 10. Second, the gifts of Christ in verses 11 through 14. And third, the, the description of the church of Christ in verses 15 and 16. First, the victory of Christ. We begin with these words in verses 7 through 10. So what did verse 7 say? Paul is actually, he's zooming in, he's focusing on the gift of grace given to each one of us as part of the church of Jesus Christ. And he says, to explain that, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now I want to keep going, but first, this is most basically a reference to Christ ascending into heaven. So after his death and resurrection, he ascends to God, to the Father's right hand, ruling and reigning over all of creation. Paul continues, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? We're going to talk about that in a moment. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So what is Paul announcing? Jesus, by his ascension, It's far above the heavens. That language sounds strange. It simply means all of creation, all of reality. He is over all of it. So that when he ascended, it wasn't abandoning the world. It wasn't giving up his lordship over the world. He was ascending to where the throne is. And so his ascension was not a statement of then just letting the world go, but it was rather a statement of him ruling over it. To talk about this, the apostle quotes Psalm 68. Verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. He is here alluding to Psalm 68, verse 18 in particular. Psalm 68, verse 18, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. Now, first of all, I'm curious if any of you noticed the change. Paul says it a little bit differently and he does this purposefully. But first, the context for Psalm 68 This is the announcement 
of a king who had gone to war against Israel's enemies, now returning in victory. And it's an announcement that God is the one who brought this victory. He protected them from evil. He keeps them secure. And that God is dwelling in Israel as a statement and announcement of their security. And the ascending is then ascending up to the city, to Zion, to the temple where the Lord dwells, Jerusalem where the throne of the king is. That language of ascension then is the language of a victorious king who has defeated Israel's enemies. The apostle quotes that as being fulfilled in the ascension of Christ. I want to stop here for a moment. So often we think we have the gospel all figured out as a very individual salvation kind of thing. Right? So often in the Christian church today we summarize the gospel as simply how I can get my sins forgiven and go to heaven one day. And then when you read something like Psalm 68... God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. Now we have to sort of awkwardly figure out, how do we make that fit? If what the Bible is concerned with is just how I as an individual can go to heaven one day, how do we make something like Psalm 68 fit? Well, this is not how the New Testament speaks. It actually is telling us that we need Psalm 68 to understand what the gospel is. What are we even about as a Christian church? What is the good news of Jesus Christ? Psalm 68 is not something strange we have to make fit. It is, the apostle is saying, what explains what happened in Christ. Psalm 68 announces there is such a thing as evil in the world, and what the world needs is for the creator to act to defeat that evil. And the apostle Paul is saying that when Jesus ascended into heaven, that is the announcement that God has finally done that. That what Psalm 68 was giving just a small expression of, that particular conflict Israel faced, was really about cosmic evil, universal evil. The fact that evil exists in the world and that God's people needed God to act to defeat it. You need to have that sense of what Psalm 68 is saying echoing in the background when then we listen to the rest of what the Apostle Paul says. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? Now there's all sorts of debates about what this means. The simplest possibility for what it means is that it's simply referring to the incarnation. That the eternal Son of God who eternally dwelt in God's presence in heaven came down to earth when he was made man in the incarnation. And that that was prior to then him ascending. That is a possible interpretation. But as many writers will point out, the, the way Paul says this though is very strange if that's what he's intending to say. When he says the lower regions... This is the kind of language that would have brought to mind, especially for people of the time, the language of the underworld, the place where demonic evil dwells, Hades, the place of the dead, the place that is sort of represented by whatever is fearful and dark in the world. And I am, I am persuaded of this, that what the apostle is really saying here is that in the ascension, Christ was victorious over all of that. All that is in the lowest regions of the earth, above the highest heavens. And one of the clues of this is that earlier, that language of above all things, the apostle used in exactly this way. Chapter 1, verse 20, when he says Christ ascended, verse 21, he says, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. This was language for Jesus ascending as one who conquered all the demonic powers, all spiritual evil in the world. So with this strange language, the apostle is emphasizing 
that Christ has defeated evil. Christ has defeated all that is dark and fearful in the world, and he rules over all of it. Now, if you are not persuaded that that is what descended means, and I'll just go ahead and let you know, John Calvin doesn't think it means that. He thinks it just means the incarnation, all right? So you don't have to be persuaded. Maybe that's not what descended means. But we do know that's what the passage is saying. Because that's what Psalm 68 says, which Paul quotes, and that is what Ephesians 1 is clearly announcing when it says, above all the powers in the world. And so however you interpret that particular phrase, what it alerts us to is that the gospel is proclaimed as Christ, as the the one who at the cross, evil did its worst, all that is dark, spiritual darkness, human kingdoms aligned against God, spiritual leaders rejecting the Lord, demonic evil itself, all of it was poured out on Christ. It did the worst it could do. And in the resurrection, Christ defeated it. And in the ascension, it is announced that he rules over all of it. Brothers and sisters, we ought to talk about the gospel this way. This is how the scriptures speak of it. And yet we, in the Christian church today, so easily always reduce it just to individual experience. And in fact, some of you might be thinking right now, and the minister's up there saying all this crazy big stuff about about the ascension and this victory over demonic evil and Christ ruling over all things. How does this relate to me? Do you you know what's going on in my life, what I'm facing, what I'm experiencing? And so remember where the apostles started in this section in verse 7. But to each of us, grace was given. Whatever it is in your life right now, struggling against sin, broken relationships, simply the afflictions of the suffering of this life, what God's word is announcing is grace to each one of us. And the way we get there is with this language that Christ has ascended into heaven as the one who has defeated evil. The scriptures are announcing to you that however your life feels, however the world appears to you, however the life of church seems to be, that victory has been won. And that the victory of Christ is definitive and decisive in the middle of history. And it guarantees future victory when Christ returns. However your life appears. Brothers and sisters, we need to be more open to the fact that we are up against spiritual evil. That it is real. That in our struggles with battling against sin in our struggles to be faithful in the relationships God has placed us in, that one of the things we are up against is demonic evil. And you say, yeah, but it's, it's also my sinful nature. It's also the influence of the sinful world. All of that is true. And as a, a minister friend of mine once said to me when I was burdened by this, he said, you know, you don't have to sort it out. You don't always know in any given situation just how to parse it out. Is it my own sin? Is it demonic evil? Is it the influence of the world? But what we do need to be sure of, that the scriptures are very clear about, is that it is all of it. And however much you might not be able to parse it out in a specific situation, you need to consider the reality of spiritual evil. Even the language of the lower regions, echoing, 
echoing the language in ancient cultures for the underworld, the place of the dead, the place where the dark god Hades supposedly ruled and reigned. When you are afraid of death, when you are afraid of sickness, when you are afraid of the things in this life that pass away and the reason it is so dark and fearful is it all seems to be heading toward death, hear the announcement, first of all, that part of what is fearful in that is a real evil that does exist in the world that claims to be in charge of all of that. And hear the announcement in the gospel of Jesus Christ that all that is dark and fearful has been defeated. All that is dark and fearful lurking in this world has been defeated by our Lord Jesus Christ and he rules over all of it. For the life of the church, for the events of the world, the church needs to proclaim that Jesus is the king, that he rules and reigns and governs all of it, that all things that are happening serve the purposes of his kingdom when he will come again in glory to make all things new. And the movement of the world is relentlessly the movement of that victory. The movement of history, of time itself, has the shape of Jesus being the one who has ascended into heaven and rules over all. That is how we must interpret what is happening in the world. Now, there are those who are tempted to say that, therefore, that means we ought to expect America to get better and better, if only the church would be faithful. And that's not what this means at all. This has nothing to do with America. This has nothing to do with any particular nation of the world. In fact, that is a grievous danger. That the church of Jesus Christ is an international community in all the nations of the world. And the language of the kingdom and the relentless success of the gospel of Jesus Christ is about the church and about men and women from all the nations of the world finding salvation as part of the church of Jesus Christ. And indeed, we must remember that when Jesus ascended into heaven, think of Revelation 5, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John says, I turned and looked, and it was a lamb who was slain. Christ reigns in heaven as a lamb who was slain. The church is called to live in the world as part of this victorious reign of Christ, sharing in the suffering of Christ. And so the fact that we suffer, that the church suffers, that we so often look weak, is not contrary to what is being declared. That is the shape of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we are called to bear the cross, to be like him, and to be confident that that is the path along which the kingdom of God comes into the world. Indeed, when the Apostle Paul announces this victory, what he talks about is the church. Not any particular nation, not any particular uh, a place in the world, but about the church of Jesus Christ filling the world. The gifts of Christ. Verse 8. Remember how that went. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. Sorry, I forgot to talk about that part with you. Remember what the change is. So Psalm 68 says he received gifts. In this quote, Paul says he gave gifts. What he's saying is that what Christ received in his victory, what Psalm 68 declares, he has now poured out upon his church. That his suffering church living in a frightening world where there is so much evil, so much temptation, he has then poured out gifts. And remember what those gifts are for each one of us. Well, what are these gifts then he has poured out? So you need, a, uh, you need some momentum here, a running start. What are the themes? Paul says, to each one of you. And this is part of announcing Christ's reign, his kingdom over all of reality. Verse 11, 
And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. What is this gift he gave? He gave the gift of the officers of the church, of leaders in the church. Now, there's debates about how to parse out what each one of these refers to, but the broad Christian consensus across multiple traditions, not just Reformed, is that all of these have come to a focus in the official offices, the ministry that Christ has given to his church. Whoa, wait a minute. Christ rules and reigns over all of reality. He gives officers for his church. He builds his church. In fact, what is the purpose of those officers? Uh, To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So what is the purpose of Jesus' reign? It is to build the church, and he builds the church by giving these officers who would minister in the church. Notice how their focus is on the word. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, all of these have the direct reference or at least the connotation of the use of the word of God to minister. And so it's all Christ's word, the scriptures that he gives by his spirit that he then through these offices uses to build up his church. All of that, the goal then, is the growth of the church. Now, I know 13, verses 13 through 14, it's a long stretch of phrases here. But the point to it is, Christ wants his church to grow in maturity. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What's the image there? It's of the church as a person, a body, with Christ as the head, growing up into Christ as the head. And to enable the church to grow, Christ gives offices to the church. Now, there is so much we could say here. We have to keep moving. Notice the focus on the word. Notice the focus on the importance of the offices. This is that a climactic moment in what Paul is saying. Christ ascends into heaven. He receives gifts. And the gift he gives is these officers to build the church. And notice as well, the focus of them is to equip the saints. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, as I said, the Christian church has understood all all of those offices to come to a focus in the ministry of ministers, elders, and deacons in the life of the church. And what is the purpose of their ministry? To build up the church, to equip the saints for the saints' work of ministry. I want you to notice something here theologically. In Christian churches, there's often a divide between those who want to emphasize how important the offices are, leaders, pastor, elders, bishops, whatever, whatever different traditions talk about them different ways, emphasize the offices, or there are those who want to say what we call the priesthood of all believers, right? That, that, that all of us are prophet, priest, and king in Christ. That there's a danger in talking about offices, dividing the people from their access to Christ, these sorts of themes. And these are often in competition with each other. I remember when I was a kid, a church that had on a sign, some, you know, often on a sign they'll say the name of a minister, which may be a little bit odd, but often signs do that. Well, on their sign it said, all the congregation ministers. Okay, well, why do they say that? Well, because of this text, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. But you see, when they do that, they're saying, we don't think ministers are important, we think we're all ministers, right? And these are opposed to each other. Well, that's not what this says. This says, 
The purpose of the official ministry of the church, the offices, is to equip the church for every member ministry. That all of it goes together. They serve each other. They reinforce each other. They're not opposed to each other. That the officers of the church are given to equip the church to minister to each other. This is a reformed insight, a reformational insight, that we can both emphasize the importance of the offices and emphasize that what the offices are doing is equipping all of us to serve faithfully as Christians, to minister to one another as part of the church of Jesus Christ. Does anyone feel like we have totally shifted gears? A moment ago, we were talking about all of this really big stuff of Christ reigning over all the world and the fact of evil in the world, and now all of a sudden we're talking about how like, elders in a congregation should relate together. There are some who at this moment would accuse. I'm, I'm going to talk about the church for the rest of our time. This morning, okay, we've got a few more minutes. I'm going to be talking about the church. Third point, the church of Christ. And there are those who would accuse that if what you do right now is to go on to talk about the life of the church and the role of offices and how we minister to each other, then you're obviously ignoring the world. You have turned inward and you are ignoring all the stuff going on out there. This is an accusation that is thrown around all the time. A theologian I've been reading recently uses the image for what we are doing right now of being like a heartbeat. So if you get your blood pressure taken, you have in the heartbeat, there's the diastole and the systole, movement of the heart, where the heart relaxes and the blood surges back into the heart, and then the heart muscles contract again and the blood surges back out. And this writer argues that's how we ought to think of what is happening in Christian worship. When we as the church gather together, It's like the blood returning to where it gets its oxygen in the heart, where the blood that went to the lungs is then mixing back together, and the blood gets its oxygen, and then the heart beats again out into the world. It's like the pattern of the week is that we come together as the church so we can be re-energized, re-equipped for the heartbeat then to send us back out into the world. Our coming together, our being the church distinct from the world, Our being the church and not talking about America or any particular nation, but talking about the international church of Jesus Christ is that we might then be pumped back out into the world precisely as light, as a source of life, to be out in the world in every area of life living as those who were formed by being here. And so when we talk about the inward things of who we are as the church, it is for the sake of the world. And the irony is that when the church starts talking about all the stuff out there instead, we give up the one thing that makes us worth anything to the world, which is the otherworldly, heavenly, eternal character of the church. We must not give up the distinctness of what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. The otherworld character, this is the heavenly kingdom of God breaking into the world. And we come here, we gather and worship to be energized, oxygenated by that, that we can then go out into the world. All of this is for the sake of the mission of the church. And this is exactly the point to Ephesians 4. Paul is alluding, there is all sorts of evil, all sorts of problems. Christ rules over all of it, and now he gives officers to his church. Gather gather as the church, and in that gathering, be oxygenated, equipped for who you are called to be in the world. All right. In that context, then, with that understanding of what is happening, we hear, then, Paul's description of the church of Christ, verses 15 and 16. 
Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Remember the personal transition. To each one of us, grace has been given. It has been announced that Christ has ascended. He gives the life of the church. And what is the purpose of it? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. We are, every one of us, called to be the church ministering to each other. And I want you to be struck by just how strong the language is that Paul uses. It can be lost in verse 16 because the grammar of it feels kind of convoluted. Verse 16, from whom the whole body, then there's a bunch of clauses, phrases added to that, makes itself, makes the body grow. From whom the whole body, joined and held together, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. The body makes the body grow. That is, we help each other grow. We all, each, contribute to the growing of the church. And it is so striking that in a context where Paul is emphasizing the reign of Christ, Christ is the one doing this, where he emphasizes the giving of officers, ministers, elders, deacons, equip us. But in the midst of all of those emphases, he says the body makes the body grow. That we're all being equipped for the work of ministry. That all of us are called as the church in our gathering together to be ministering to each other as part of the body of Christ. The church is not an institution here simply to do things for you. We are catechized relentlessly in America to think of the church consumeristically. It does not matter how conservative or progressive, how traditional or contemporary, it doesn't matter. We think of it consumeristically. If we go somewhere more conservative and traditional, we're just wanting to consume more conservative and traditional services. The church is not simply an organization to do things for you. The church is who you are. The church is your identity. You are part of the body of Christ. And the place of the offices, ministers, elders, deacons, that Christ gives to the church is to equip all of us to be doing that work of being the church, of loving each other, of correcting each other, of encouraging each other, fellowship, pointing each other to Christ, All of that is our task for each other. The professionalization of the ministry is absolutely deadly. You know what I mean by that? We hire a pastor to do stuff for us. The professionalization of the ministry is deadly. The minister is there to equip us in all doing all the things. We don't don't hire the minister to then do all things for us so we don't have to do it. We don't choose elders and deacons to do things for us so we don't have to do it. They are to be equipping us all to be doing all of the things in ministering to each other. And this is where, to preach to myself here, people-pleasing ministers are deadly. Part of what this means is that it is the minister's job to not make everyone happy. See, what would make everyone happy would be the minister and elders just doing everything, Right? We're all called to be visiting each other, to be caring for each other, to be counseling each other, to be serving each other, loving each other. And it is a temptation for people-pleasing leadership to want to usurp that, to take that over, 
to, to do it for you instead so we can get patted on the back. You know, good job doing that. Way to always be there. First of all, it's not possible. But even if it were, it would be deadly for the life of the church because we are all called, as Paul says in such striking language, to be the body that makes the body grow, to be doing the work of ministry for and with each other. Now, remember what I said before, none of that takes away from the special task of minister or elders or deacons. There remains a special office that they carry out. But the purpose of that special office is to be equipping all of the church for this life together. You each have been given the grace of the life of the church to enable you to minister to one another. You each have been given the grace of the officers of the church to equip you to be the church for and with each other. And now do you suddenly start to see, maybe you've been seeing it all along, but this is what Paul's been saying since the beginning of Ephesians 4, that the church is called to live together in a way distinct from the world that is therefore light in the world. And that this is the means by which God acts, by which God brings his kingdom is this life of the church. What dignity, what purpose, what meaning to all of our life together. But also, anyone feel like this is really hard again? Ephesians 4 has been rough. Bearing with one another. Right? This is difficult, challenging. And so I want to remind us as we conclude here of the gospelness of all of this. The title of our sermon, The Fullness of Christ. All of this is about a growing up into the language of verse 13, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is, it is who we already are in Christ that we are called to be growing in and into. Christ is building his church and this will be relentlessly victorious. It is relentlessly victorious right now. It will not look strong and powerful in the eyes of the world. It's not meant to. Our Savior didn't and neither do we. But it is Christ who is building his church. And in that moment where perhaps in the life of the church you feel particularly burdened, challenged, look to Christ. Believe his promises of what he is doing. And it is that faith in Christ's promises that then enables this life. What God's word here announces to you is victory, promise, Christ reigning and ruling over evil, and then in the confidence of who Christ is and what he has done, our calling to be the church for each other. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.